0: Today's Animal Spirits is brought to you by Victory Shares, the Victory Shares free cash flow ETF. Victory Shares wants to know Are value indexes measuring the wrong thing? Finance 101, I learned this in school. The value of a company is a present value of future free cash flows, correct? Okay, so free cash flow yield is a key fundamental metric, it measures companies' ability to generate cash, indicating financial health, we all know this. Shares believes they have a better way to measure both value and quality. So they think the traditional free cash flow measures, which everyone knows, may be falling short and they have an improved approach for evaluating free cash flow. So for example, not just looking at trailing measures, but
1: forward estimates of a company's free cash flow as well?
0: Right, so they're saying that like past free cash flow, you may be like overlooking future growth. And that's where they kind of marry the two approaches, I think. So they're looking at free cash flow and a growth filter to remove companies that have weak growth prospects. So high-quality companies, trading at a discount, favorable growth prospects.
1: Speaking of that, you know, their, their largest uh, sector weighting is healthcare,
0: And I would certainly say that that fits the bill of things that are out of favor. Oh, interesting. Okay, so see the link in their description for more. Check out the Victory Shares free cash flow ETF. Welcome to Animal Spirits, a show about markets, life, and investing. Join Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson as they talk about what
1: they're reading, writing, and watching. All opinions expressed by Michael and Ben are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome to Animal Spirits with Michael and Ben. Before we get into the show today, talk about Thanksgiving, a review, maybe Ben has altered his thoughts. I don't know. We'll find out. On November 29th, the day that this comes out, actually, at 2 o'clock Eastern, for financial advisors, we're having our second pilot episode of The Smoke Show. This time on the show, we've got uh, Flourish Cash, which is a company that helps advisors help their clients earn more on their cash in their checking account. Um, and I don't want to step up too, too much of the material, but I just want to say one thing. There is a feature on Flourish Cash that allows you to, every two weeks, uh, you could set like a balance in your checking account. So let's just say that you want to keep $10,000 in your checking account. So if you've got more, money will get swept out of your checking account and go into this high yield savings account. I like that feature. And if you have less, let's say you've got $6,000, it'll pull $4,000. From this seamlessly,
0: automatically, to top every two it weeks. Off, Yeah, cash management is so hot right now, right? Especially, I think for clients, this is something they're finally paying attention to. This is good timing for this.
1: So, Flourish Cash is available only for uh, clients of financial advisors, and the Smoke Show episode two is also only available for financial advisors. So, hit the link in the show notes if you are interested in hopping on the live show at two Eastern. All right, so Ben, how was your Thanksgiving?
0: My Thanksgiving was good. I had a I had a nice Thanksgiving. My only. Thing about Thanksgiving, I didn't say it was bad or overrated. I just... I I believe. I believe you said. I believe you said. Eh. You know what the best part about Thanksgiving was? Is the next day when I could finally appreciate, like, looking forward to Christmas. That was it. Listen, man. I've had to watch. So you're doubling down. You're doubling down. The only good thing about Thanksgiving is looking forward to Christmas. Listen, we we hosted. We had a good day with family. It was great. We wore our Tropical Brothers shirts because that's what we do on the holidays. I told you to do. Did you do it or not? I forgot. Okay. I think you wimped out. Uh, yeah, Thanksgiving. But then you can look forward to Christmas. That's the best part of Thanksgiving. is It's it's like a back to back holiday. I'm just saying Thanksgiving can't hold a candle in the wind at Christmas. That's all I'm saying.
1: Uh, well, I can't I can't uh, speak up there, being that I don't celebrate Christmas. Unfortunately, it looks like the greatest holiday of all time that I'm not
0: taking part of. Fair, you're cash on the sidelines for Christmas.
1: But I feel like I feel like some Jews uh, have adopted the Christmas celebration. Why not? It's not like the,
0: most of the people celebrating are religious, right? Here's, here's how would Jews celebrate Christmas. We eat Chinese food. Yeah, that's what, that's what I did too. Okay. So, the economy is so terrible right now that we had the busiest day ever at airports in the USA from TSA. This is, I guess, Sunday was the busiest day ever for screening from TSA people. It was almost 2.9 million. People show the pictures of the planes. I've never been to the airport for Thanksgiving. It looks like a nightmare. I don't think you could pay me to travel on Thanksgiving like that. No way. We, had to, we drove a little bit from Detroit, and even that is traveling on Thanksgiving. I, you couldn't pay me to go to the airport. Uh, Carl Cantania, Black Friday shopper, set an online spending record per Adobe. Why is Adobe reporting on this? That's a good question. Are people printing out their receipts on PDF? I'm a I bit know.
1: confused. don't know.
0: I don't know. So anyway, the, the 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 things are so bad in the economy right now that everyone's just traveling and spending money to cope. I think that's where we're at. Fair? Uh I'm being facetious. All right. What else do we got here? Alright, so this is interesting. Isn't this isn't this a thing though that we probably hit a new Black Friday record every year?
1: That's a good question. Barry used to do a post every year about
0: Oh, that's right. Like 12 how years bad, in a row. How bad economists were predicting retail <laughs> That's sales. true. about Black Friday? Oh, Barry, that's right. Where was Barry's Black Friday post this year? Uh, it's like a tradition.
1: So d- do we break the record every year? I don't know. That's a good question. I would, I would I
0: would, assume for the most part. I broke the record for most emails ever in my inbox saying this is the biggest sale ever, 40 to 50% off. Apparently inflation, we had a reprieve for one day because literally everything was 50% off everywhere. Did you buy anything? Yeah, a few clothes. uh Nothing special pair of shoes I don't know I don't know what did I remember, buy? remember how can you believe that people used to get up at like five in the morning and go shopping at an actual physical store? I think that's, that's
1: still a thing, really probably not probably not as common as it used to be or not as big of a deal as it used to be
0: but I mean that that was a thing that was a back in our day yeah, we but didn't back buy in stuff the day online.
1: back in the day, you can get a two thousand dollar TV for eleven $1, hundred dollars like yeah, you go to the store for that for sure,
0: yeah, but now you can just get one because it's a Friday
1: so Carl Quintanilla tweeted uh, a chart from Deutsche Bank. There are more global cuts coming through than hikes, which is the
0: first time that's been the case since January 2021. 24, this is really going to ramp up, don't you think? This has to. I think like the, the global hiking cycle
1: is done. You know, we haven't, you and I haven't really discussed this. Do you think that the Fed is going to cut rates in 24?
0: Definitely. I think, Well. Wow. I would lean towards yes more than no, if I'm doing a grant protect, But yes, I mean, like, probably in March. And, and I don't think it has to be because the economy is cooling. But I think if, if inflation continues to fall, that they kind of have to, don't they?
1: Why? Just because those rates are no longer necessary?
0: Yeah. Mission accomplished? That, I think that would be a mission accomplished thing.
1: So last week, we spoke about how long it's been um, since we had an all-time high. Uh, you wrote a post about this that we didn't include last week, so I wanted to just bring it up. It's been 470 something, maybe 480 days, and this is
0: according to you the fifth longest streak since at least since 1950. Is that right? That's that was my my calculation. The other ones and the other ones are kind of crazy because from 1968- oh wait a second,
1: you know what I just realized?
0: Hmm. You
1: came to you came to the Michael side. You you now use trading days instead of. But you used to use
0: calendar days, which Ah, to me made no sense. No, that's because the the data I have is only trading days. So, yeah, you're right. I I flip-flop on that. That's fair. Okay. But the craziest ones
1: here— Fifth longest streak ever? Wow, that's kind of If you look, there wasn't a new
0: high from 1968 to 1972, and then you had new highs. And then a year later, you had another bear market and then a long drought from 73 to 80. And then the same thing happened from 2000 to 2007 you had yeah. like a few months of new highs and then a crash again. So those periods were really both like 13 years or something. Yeah, the the, the new all-time high doesn't even count because it was for a second. Yes, it happened. It was a blip. You came all the way back and then you crashed again. So All right, so
1: you, do you want to say like 1968 to 1980, really? And then 2000 to 2013? I mean, yes, in 2007, you made new all-time highs. But it was, I think, for
0: – I don't even know if it was for a couple of months. But how right, about so that? that? that's what I'm saying, that, that those periods are – uh, and it's funny because a lot of people, as as like a, we're long-term aficionados, we're long-term optimistic about the stock market. People will like shove this in your face, be like, see, the long-term doesn't always work. And my retort to that is always like, this is just part of investing in risk assets. Like so, like you can't get the good returns if you don't have crappy periods like this. I think it goes hand in hand. I think a lot of people have sort of swept under the rug that
1: we took our medicine in 2022. Yes. And if, looking at 2023 returns in a vacuum, like- Amazon's up seventy five percent, and all of these mega caps. Like, yeah, they got annihilated in twenty twenty two. Right, they've basically gone nowhere. If you look at a two year period, this is. I think I from, think
0: Google, Google, and Amazon. I'm pretty sure both fell fifty five percent. Yeah, I mean, Nvidia is down almost seventy percent. It's like, yeah, you look at these these crazy returns here, but and it's Facebook off as well. Really How much was, was Facebook down seventy? Close to eighty, probably. Good one from bar chart here. Uh, S and P five hundred is up almost five percent since the Federal Reserve hike on March 17th, the first hike on March 17th, 2022. There've been a total of 11 hikes while raising the rate from 0.25 to 5.5. I mean, obviously we had the drawdown in there, but it is is crazy if you think just in terms of rates. Like, I remember everyone said like, listen, higher rates using just the discount factor has to mean lower stock prices. And it did for a little bit, but I'm sure- Well, 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 how about this? What if the
1: market fell in anticipation of hikes and now it's rising in anticipation of cuts? So it's not like the market is adopting these five percent rates forever or ingesting them forever. It's looking forward to three percent or whatever the number is.
0: Maybe I I just think that the 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 rate mechanism thing, like it's not a it's it's not like a scale that goes like this up and down, where it's not always that easy. That's my whole point.
1: Oh, you know what? You know what I notice? I was looking at at this chart the other day at the S and P five hundred. You know what I? You know what I see on here? I see I see a V.
0: I mean, the past couple of weeks have been a V-shaped rally. Oh, from the right? quick ten percent correction we had. From that
1: ten percent correction where we closed below the two hundred A. Whoosh! Oh, so remember, you said it's V-shaped it.
0: rallies are over. Are they back? They're back. I mean, I'm all not right. predicting. I'm just saying that that's that, a V. Yeah. That is. Yeah, you're right. That's a V. It's been a while. Whatever happened to your uh, deep V T-shirt that you used to wear all the time? Remember? I'm glad you asked. Boom. Okay. Well,
1: actually, no, no, no. You're talking about like the Hanes V's. I had to retire those.
0: Yeah. They were pretty bad. Let's let's be honest. Well,
1: listen, you, you you graduate, you you know you, you had grow like, up a little bit. He had like
0: an accordion neck on a lot of those. <laughs> <laughs> All right, okay, really good set of charts from Apollo. They have this like 180 page deck on the credit market, the credit market outlook, and they say a default cycle has already started. So they say U.S. speculative grade default rates are already rising. They show from when the Fed started cutting to these default rates, and they've gone from, I don't know, below 2% in some cases, and they're looking at loans and high-yield bonds, and they are now 4 to 6%, I guess. So the defaults on these, again, speculative debt is rising. So I'm guessing this is like the worst. of the, I don't know if that means subprime or, or what, but anyway, he also shows the yields. Investment-grade debt is yielding around 6.8% now. High-yield is 85 If you look like... If you had to pick there, what doesn't corporate debt seem like the better choice there versus high yield since spreads still haven't really blown out? Because look, I mean, the next chart shows this credit spreads are not pricing in a recession. I don't do people have like lines in the sand on these things where they realize like because they always say like the the Fed funds futures are not pricing in this or not pricing in that or the credit spreads are not. What's the line in the sand for this is pricing in recession? This is not. Do we have Uh, with uh, with the level of yields? Yeah. I would say it's probably the spread, no? That's what I'm saying. But he, they say the credit spread are not pressing in a recession. That's what the weird uh, so thing I is. Think,
1: I think investment grade yielding 6.8% is more attractive than high yield yielding 5, yielding
0: 8.5. Okay. Another, a good point, though, brought up by our very own Bill Sweet on this. So a lot of people are saying, like, why would you invest in stocks when you can get almost 7% in investment grade? And it depends where you hold that money if you're going to compare that to stocks. Because if you're holding money in a taxable account, as Bill says, you pay, you pay taxes on stocks later, besides dividends or sales, but you pay taxes on bonds now. So making mm. a comparison of bonds to stocks, I know this is a dorky point, but it's worth making. That makes sense? Yeah. You can't compare bond yields to stock returns unless we're taking taxes into account. All right, this is a crazy chart from Joe Weisenthal, NVIDIA's parabolic revenue growth. And they already had like an unbelievable run. And then their quarterly revenue growth just skyrockets. And I feel like a lot of investors are constantly trying to prepare for the next risk. Like what's the next black swan? What's the next recession? What's the next shoe to drop? I don't think anyone really, maybe you don't have to prepare for like an upside risk, but don't you think AI is a huge upside risk if you're a conservative or defensive investor? Absolutely. I mean- Looking at a chart like this,
1: ChatGPT was unveiled in November, right? So right. 2024 is really like the
0: first year.
1: Full is that going to slow right?
0: down or stop in 2024? No. So I think we've talked about this before, but like if you had to have an upside hedge, doesn't it just have to be the NASDAQ 100? Is that the easiest, simple answer to like spread your bets a little bit so you can sh- be sure to take part in this? An upside hedge? Or I mean, the- like, these What, what seven... would you, if, if you thought like there's a, 10% chance that this goes into a bubble or, or goes, like, what would you, what would you buy? Because there's, there's not that many AI stocks, right? I mean, obviously, NVIDIA is, is an answer, but if you don't know who the winners are going to isn't the NASDAQ 100 the simplest answer? So let's see. So Apple and Microsoft, that's
1: 22%. Amazon's another 5 NVIDIA's 4%. And then Facebook is another 4%. Yeah, sure. I don't know. Just a thought. So 2022, so 2023 is the opposite of 2022. It's a mirror image, right? Large cap growth got destroyed in 2022. Value well, did well, high quality monster did well, monster
0: comeback, Value did did, stocks did well. Now it's exactly reverse.
1: so. Investors are always fighting the last war. Like this is one of the permanent. How many? Fixtures. How many people
0: do you think did the opposite? Did the George Costanza and did the opposite, and it hurt them? So like they missed out. They were in growth. They missed out on the value high quality stuff, and then they thought, you know what, maybe we should go to that because inflation's here. Oh, a lot. It had to happen to people. A lot. Hedge funds, yeah.
1: Meaning like meaning like you chased tech in, in twenty two, got crushed, rotated into dividends after their good performance. Absolutely. I mean, that's that you know, sometimes revert, that's yeah. just the way it goes. Uh all right, so Bloomberg had a great chart. Sixty billion dollars net inflows into dividend focused US ETFs in twenty twenty two, which is a record. And effectively zero inflows today. This is just an astounding collapse. And we talked about how like uh, interest rates impact this impact stocks. Well, dividend payers are getting annihilated, at least relatively speaking, relative to what you could have earned just in the index because it's rel- yeah, because those are really competing with investment grade
0: bonds and, the, and the, cash. The funny thing is, again, this is this is like fun with numbers. But if you compare the start of twenty twenty two to now. Everything is probably relatively close, like value versus growth, dividends versus non-dividends. If you look at the two-year period, the full two-year yeah, period, it, it's probably pretty close. I, I wonder what the. Remember, we talked for a long time about the call option stuff. How after twenty twenty two, a bunch of people put all this money into call option strategies. I wonder if those, if the money into those, is slowing down as well. Into selling calls. Yeah, because the, a a rip rising, a rip roaring, you know, up market like this year is is a year where that kind of strategy is. Sound a lag. It, has it sounds to.
1: like you're sending. It sounds like you're sending out the bat signal to Jeffrey Patak. Speaking of, Jeffrey tweeted that the meme ETF is closing. Hey, did you see the money yet?
0: No, I. I don't know if I'm going to see it. I don't know if I need to. We we lived through it. What 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 are they going to show me in the movie that I don't know? You yeah. literally lived no. through it and watched it every day. Did you see it yet? I did not. Like I I do feel like there we're we're they're jumping. Like I'm surprised. That there hasn't already, there's going to be an AI movie probably about what happened with OpenAI and Sam Altman, and like I feel like we're we're at a rush to make everything that happens now immediately a documentary or movie, and I don't think it needs to be since we live it on social media when it happens.
1: Yeah, personal opinion. Anyway, so the meme, the meme, uh, the Roundhill meme ETF is closing. I kind of can't believe. He, so Jeffrey tweeted a chart of the meme ETF versus Ark. That, I don't mean to be disrespectful here, but. I mean, I don't know what else to say. ARC is the meme ETF.
0: It, it tracks wow. it. Not quite one for one, but damn close. Didn't that get a decent amount of money too? What, remember the, meme the Dave meme et- ETF? Did that I one close too? Eh, that's a good question.
1: I don't think that meme investing is something that anybody would say that they do. But yet,
0: you know, the chart is true. The chart is. Okay. Uh, someone sent this to me. It's a new study showing that higher levels of financial optimism are associated with lower levels of cognitive ability. And the idea—and it shows, like, the, the higher your IQ is, the more pessimism you have. And the lower your IQ is, the more extreme optimism you have. Like, the polar sides.
1: I would buy that the people that are, like, too smart are understandably very negative in the world.
0: Yes, because right? they're more but educated and they know what's going on.
1: Yeah, the world is a is a scary place and it always has this been. Is, this so- is
0: why I think we have a negative bias to us now because— In the past, people were just unaware of all the bad crap that was going on in the world and didn't. it wasn't just inundated with it all the time. And now that you know bad stuff goes on, it's way easier to be negative. You know who I would put in this category? And
1: I'm a fan of his work, um, so I don't mean this in a bad way. But Ben Hunt. I don't know that he would necessarily describe himself as a pessimist. In fact, I don't don't know that he would. But he is so gosh dang intelligent and seems to at least... (laughs) You know, according to his Twitter feed, like seems to s- s- view
0: rationally, the world is a very scary place. And and I, I I agree with that. I just I think it's easier if you're a really smart person to be cynical. And I actually read this study because it's not as, just as simple as this graph. They were saying like being like overly optimistic all the time naively can get you into trouble with your finances. Like it, in terms of like you think returns are going to be so good that you don't need to save a lot. So that but my thinking about this is like if you're going to go one way or the other having a bias towards optimism is actually the smarter strategy, even if you don't have a high IQ, because it's, it's more commonsensical. Well, to be,
1: I mean, I think there's, there's rec- some, my rec- point reckless, is
0: that, but reckless optimism is just as dumb, if not worse. Cause that's how you blow yourself Reckless Optimism up. is way better than reckless pessimism. How but How could you be a reckless pessimist? I don't know about that. How can you, there's tons of reckless pessimists, but a reckless
1: pessimist would either be just missing out on stocks, just
0: sitting in cash. Yes. There's tons of those people. I'm gonna put all my money into golden bullets and canned goods and Yeah, but would you rather miss stock market returns or blow yourself? Think up? about how big the audience is for zero hedge. Think about that. That's reckless pessim. Like, I do think that there is this 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 bias towards that And, like I'm smarter than everyone because I'm pessimistic. Like that that's totally a thing. Well, yeah, I mean optimists just look delusional. Like you well, you don't see the risks. Like there, there's plenty of people with a high IQ. Like, give me the 120 IQ person who has the good temperament and is long-term optimistic versus the person who's got 160 IQ and like, I'm too smart for everyone. Like that, that again, bringing back to Buffett, I think Buffett went from being like underrated to overrated to like now underrated again because the fact that he never turned into a cycle, think about how many hedge fund managers these days. You, talk, told, you kept sending me passages from the Dalio book about how he's, he's predicting a d- depression every three years. Buffett never went down that road. He, he stayed optimistic his entire career and guess what? He was right. But every other one who becomes a big investor these days eventually turns pessimistic and like has to talk about how bad things are. And he never did that. Warren Buffett is underrated. Isn't that sounds? It's 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 a little bit of a take, but it's it's kind of true. Finding finding
1: the, finding finding the middle ground right is probably the best approach. The stock market is biased to go up over time because earnings per share go up. I don't want to participate in the growth of the economy of capitalism. However. I have to do so in a measured way to make sure that I
0: don't, you know, do it. You have rash. to manage risks. And But I'm saying if, if you're going to be biased one way or another, give me optimism all day long. You know, I heard, I heard a new war, but I, you,
1: I, I, wait, I don't know that I agree with that. I think
0: I, I really do think that you could be like a reckless optimist as well and get in trouble. I, I'm i saying if, if you're picking one or the other, give me optimism every day of the week. Sure. Okay. There was a good, I heard a good, they were telling norm jokes on the fly in the wall podcast. One of the writers, they're each doing their own Norm bit, and he said, I'm a pessimist, but I see the glass is half full. I just think it means I have bowel cancer.
1: <laughs> anyway. I saw, I saw Norm reel on Instagram over the weekend. I can't finish a joke, but it was— uh, That's the thing. His delivery is part of the, part of the thing. It, it was Weekend Update, and he reported on when Lisa Marie Presley and Michael Jackson broke up because she, whatever, and he is— do you know Do you know that part? Yes. Okay, yeah. Classic norm. Uh, all right, What's so, so you wrote, what investor would you want to meet if you had the chance?
0: Oh, okay. So I did an interview last week with Morningstar India, actually. They asked me some good questions, and they said, what investor would you like to meet in person if you had the chance? And this wasn't like a take answer, but my answer was like, I don't have one, really. Because, and that's not being like a contrarian or anything, but like, I don't know, like most of these people are not people that I want to emulate because they work 80 hours a week. Their personal lives are probably crap. You know, most of the really well-known investors, I would rather meet a regular person who's got it figured out and has a, has led a balanced life and still figured out how to retire with a healthy nest egg. Is that fair? Like, is there anyone you would want to meet? Uh, it's funny you ask because my trainer asked me this
1: yesterday as I was trying to get my back better. Uh, any... What's the one investor that you wish you could have in your podcast? And I said, huh, that's a really good question. My response was similar to yours. I It, it took me a while. I was like, I, that was a lame, super lame answer, but Buffett. I,
0: and then I was like, I don't, I don't know. Buffett is the last of his kind, I feel like. I mean, people pay to have lunch with him and stuff, but. There's got to be a better answer. I mean. I mean, maybe Bogle when he was alive. But I don't, there there really isn't someone that I'd say, like, I'd bend over backwards to meet this person because they would give me so much wisdom that I'd be able to take forward. I, I just don't think it exists. Ramp capital? I'm, a, I'm kind of a never meet your heroes kind of person.
1: Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Speaking of heroes, the Barry Sanders doc? Oh, uh, it's and, speak of, and speaking speak of there will never be another? Okay, save it. I got it in my recommendations. I got a lot to say on this. Okay. All right, you saw this piece from Bloomberg going around about inflation. So... Dan Greenhouse
1: tweeted the, the link to this, which by the way, not to brag, I literally wrote this post a week ago, did I not?
0: Yes. You said prices are, are everything. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and you, yeah, you showed, cause yeah, you showed. I showed numbers, cumulative sale inflation. Salad dressing. Salad dressing. Yeah,
1: which is, uh, so I'm not saying they took this idea. A lot of people don't, remember, but maybe they did, maybe they did. Uh, anyway, um, so Dan Greenhouse tweeted, you simply cannot convince people that inflation is coming down when this reality exists.
0: So my whole point on this, like, people people keep really getting mad at my, like, some someone told me they're unsubscribing last week because I said higher prices don't make me mad. And the whole thing is, like, if I Arr. said higher prices made me mad, I'd be a hypocrite. That's my whole point. Like, people like you and I should not be complaining about higher prices. That's all I'm saying. People in our position, we don't have the right to complain. There's other people who do. But here's my problem with this. It's denominator buying. So it says, it now requires $119.27 to buy the same goods and services a family could afford with $100 before the pandemic. Groceries are up 25%. It has all these, all these numbers. And then on the very little side, on the very corner of this piece, it says what, wages? hourly, hourly and real <laughs> no, nominal wages are up 20%. Real, but it says real wages have hardly budged. So it shows nominal wages up 20%. So if we take that 20% figure of wages, this is a denominator blindness thing, and apply it here, you would say water and sewage up less than wages, pets, up less than wages, major appliances, up less than wages, rent up is the same as wages, groceries up a little more than wages. If you applied that same logic and inflation adjusted these things, like you do with wages, they wouldn't look as bad. And I think that's the problem of the media that I have is they have denominator blindness. They're adjusting wages for inflation. They're not adjusting these prices in the same way. They're, they're not, they're not putting it on the same wavelength. They're showing real wages have barely budged, but, but prices are up 20%. Guess what? wages are up 20% too that's the, that's the problem i have is that they it's a footnote to say wages are up as much as a lot of these prices that's a great point so you you can't
1: you can't scream about higher prices and then also say real wages have barely budged because yeah real is net of inflation
0: exactly so i'm not again i'm not saying prices are higher prices are good i would rather have lower inflation and much less volatility in the economy, but I, I'm just saying you can't have it both ways. Yeah, um, so Nate Silver
1: uh, weighed in on, on on the disconnect, and he has a great chart showing consumption versus inflation, and he said, and he used an example of like DoorDash or Uber Eats and just how like things just snowball and just everything. It's not just that things are more expensive, but people are also spending more. Luxuries you know, become necessities. He wrote, it's not just that the fixed basket of goods was getting more expensive. They're also putting more in their baskets. And I think the, the TSA data is a good example of this. And there's a million good examples of, of not just people, not just prices going up, but people just buying more shit. Black Friday is a great example of this. It wasn't just, I also think the, the,
0: the quantity, like the number of purchases was up as well. Yes. People feel like they deserve to spend more money but they, the the prices, it's like, ah, these prices, but I'm still going to buy them. I still think the weird thing to me is that the government gets so much more blame than corporations. I'm not blaming inflation on corporations, but the fact that I put the profit margin chart in here again, the fact that they were able to raise profit margins as inflation went to 9% is kind of ridiculous to me. And I'm surprised that no one, that there isn't just more scorn on corporations for not causing this, but taking advantage of it. So margins came down a little bit, but they're, they're going up again. Yes. I also wonder... How much would lower mortgage rates really help this? Help. What? Because I, I I still think the, the young people slash first-time homebuyer cohort is the the one who has the biggest gripe against the economy. Obviously, there's interest rate sensitive parts of the economy that are hurting as well. But I, I I really understand young people. If you missed out on this window of 3% mortgage rates and a 50% climb in housing prices in such a short time, how you would be really pissed off. And I I think you deserve to be. If I was a politician and I'm trying to pull a lever to get sentiment better, I would say, hey, Fed, start buying mortgage bonds and get us back to 5%. I think, I think that would help with consumer sentiment. If I'm pulling one lever. I, obviously, people would rather have deflation or something, but that's, again, that's not gonna happen. Uh, Claudia Somm at Stay at Home Macro had a piece called Americans are better off. And she really, I think she kicked the hornet's nest again. People are mad at this. But I thought she had some really good charts in here about like what's going on. And the wages after inflation are good again, showing the bottom tier with the highest, highest. So from 2020 to 23, the bottom tier at a, after inflation is up almost 5%. The top 25% is actually down 2.4%, which is surprising. The the bottom 50% had a gain. The top 50% actually lost money to inflation, which is surprising. But this real personal consumption expenditures, this is just goods and services. This is the chart. It's, it's slightly after inflation, above trend from where we were spending before, and I think this is the whole thing is just. I and mean, this one, this one, Nate Silver was getting at. Yeah, people, people just aren't changing their habits, or they change their habits and then they're they're they kept them. People can't take stuff away. The other one, overall debt burdens for households are currently near record lows. So this is debt to income and debt to net worth, both still remain pretty low. So I know a lot of people want to say like, oh, of course everyone's traveling on Thanksgiving or spending money on Black Friday because they're going into credit card debt. The data on debt doesn't quite show that yet, and I'm sure there are obviously are households who are going into more debt. Guess what?
1: Consumer consumer behavior will change on a dime if we get layoffs.
0: Don't tell me Pass, people yeah. won't,
1: won't stop won't keep spending. That's been my whole we'll, thing. We'll it's spending. going
0: to it's going to take a recession, I think, to change consumer habits. I don't think people are just going to, because inflation is high, I don't think people are going to say, all right, we're going to buckle down. It would have to stay high for a number of years, I think, for people to buckle you, down.
1: So you definitely think the Fed is cutting in 2024. Where are you with the recession watch for
0: 2024? Yay yeah, or nay? Second half story, can I say that? I would still lean like 60-40 no. I think there's still a possibility. If, if the Fed steps in and cuts a little bit, and if, if, again, if we could get mortgage rates down and prop up housing activity to offset some stuff that's slowing from higher rates— I think that would help a lot.
1: So are you are you saying that we can declare victory in higher rates?
0: That's not going to be the thing that causes a recession? It's going to be something else? No, I think it's way too soon to say that. Yeah, I, I think it's too early to say that. I, I still think the, the higher rate stuff is affecting stuff on the margin, but it's going to be a bigger and bigger part of the margin as we go forward. Don't you? Because it has to slow corporate corporate investment in everything, right? It's just a way higher hurdle rate to do stuff. And I think eventually... The longer they say hi, the worse it is. All right. So oil,
1: Carl Clinton tweeted, oil is down 7.1% this month on pace for the second straight monthly loss after losing 10.7% in October. Uh, and Bloomberg had a piece. Oil is down. U.S. gasoline prices, excuse me, are down for 60 straight days. How come people aren't like celebrating this?
0: We only pay attention. It's the same thing with the eggs. Remember, egg prices went skyrocketed and people were like so mad about it. Then they go back down and everyone's like, eh, whatever, eggs. I think this is just the way it works. We talked to Sal from Tucrium again. He's going to talk your book next week. And he said he thinks like $50 oil before $100 oil. How many people would have had that on their bingo cards? Zero?
1: My question is like, is this like uh, idiosyncratic to the to the oil market? I don't know anything about oil and energy and gas prices. Or is this reflective of weaker demand for for energy, meaning that? Recession, or is this is
0: this just China? Like, what's going on here? Probably a little bit of both. That, that's that's the two sides. If, if you wanted to look at everything positive or negatively, you would say higher oil prices are bad because it means less money in the consumer's pocketbook. Lower oil prices are bad because that means we're demand is slowing. And we're going to recession. That's if you wanted to look at the negative part of it. And both sound smart. Yes. All right. I, I also think there, there's something to people just being unhappy these days. So the Wall Street Journal has one. Why is everyone so unhappy at work right now? And Americans, by any measures, by many measures, are unhappier at work than they have been in years. Despite wage increases, more time off, and greater control over where they work, the number of U.S. workers who say they're angry, stressed, and disengaged, is climbing. Meanwhile, a bamboo HR analysis of data from more than 57,000 workers shows job satisfaction scores have fallen to their lowest point since early 2020 after a 10% drop this year alone. This is the part that gets me. People chafe against being micromanaged back to offices, yet they also find isolating aspects of hybrid work, hybrid and remote work. This is like you can't, like, you're never going to be happy then. I don't like it when they make me come back to the office, but I also don't like being alone when I work at home. Guess what? <laughs> Those are your options. So I, I, I think, I think some people just like being unhappy. Well... Come on, this, this is this is like you're never going to win. No, no, no.
1: I don't. I don't know if I buy that for this one. So they they, as they do, they found uh, Lindsay Leisman, and Lindsay is 38 years old, and she said that she soured on her job after having to return to the office two days a week earlier this year. Pre-pandemic, she would have been happy working three days a week at home. Uh, she says, "quote It would have been a dream come true." Uh, end quote. Still, her team's in-office requirements seemed like going backwards and made her feel like that. Her professionalism and work quality were in doubt. That's the going backwards part. So when, when Jeff Mackey said people miss the recession or people miss the pandemic, yeah, I think there's a lot of legitimacy to that. I don't think that this is an example. And I do think that people like to complain. We said this last week. I think in this example, what Lindsay just described is the idea of going backwards and knowing how good you had it. And then it's a drag. I think that's impacting that's people's psychology might- a lot. Yeah. I mean everybody that I talk to is like oh I have to go back four days a
0: week now I don't know if I could do it I might I might look for a new job I'm surprised workers aren't revolting though and pushing back that, that, like people aren't coming together and saying no we're not coming back for that many days a week so look at this chart employee satisfaction tumbles I really do think that this is a lot of this is get back to the office it it is funny that the highest level was in 2020 during the pandemic i i I think Mackie might be onto something that people secretly really miss the pandemic.
1: Everybody loved working from home. And when I say everybody, if yeah. you didn't like working from home, you don't need to email us. I'm just saying, generally speaking, people preferred working from home, despite so, of all the challenges.
0: This is the human nature thing. You can't compare yourself to pre-2020 you and say, I would have been thrilled with working from home two days a week pre-2020. But now that I'm working from home two days a week, and I was working from home five days a week, I can't be happy.
1: Exactly. You've tasted the nectar, and it's very sweet. Uh, Here's another thing. Long-distance relationships between bosses and staff might also be an issue. Nearly a third of workers at large firms don't work in the same metro area as their manager, up from 23% in February 2020. That's wild. If you have no physical interaction with your
0: supervisor, and you're not getting that positive reinforcement. I don't know. Doesn't that sound, I could look at this the other way and sound, say that sounds like amazing in some yeah, instances. How many I, people, this, how many people this, hate their bosses? This is not black or white. That's a fair point. Anyway, I think
1: what's, what's not in dispute is that there is life before the pandemic and there is life after the pandemic for so many, so many
0: charts and so many different areas of our lives. Yes, but, but it's, imagine telling someone as crazy as that time was, like you're going to miss this someday. At the time, everyone would have said, you're nuts. No way.
1: Yeah, because people felt like they were being trapped. And yeah. in many cases, they were. If you if you were one of the people in the pandemic who was stuck in a small apartment, maybe with young children, oh my
0: God, it was probably a nightmare. Okay, I did an update on the layoffs one since we still have layoffs in the dock here. Eventually, this is going to happen. So I wish you could do, cut off the pandemic stuff because you put that in the chart and just takes it. So I, I looked at this, the actual numbers. The current level of layoffs that we're at, in 2007 to 2019, we never got lower than the current level of layoffs at any point in there. Wait, I'm sorry. Say that one more time. So from 2000, pre-pandemic, this only goes, the data goes back to 2007. 2007 to 2019, we never got lower than the curl, current level of layoffs. So I'm saying layoffs are still lower than they ever got pre-pandemic in the first. Oh, interesting. Got it. So layoffs are still very low. So unemployment Well, that's is my question. That's my bit. question. People are not getting laid off, really. So what – there has to – does there have to be a catalyst? Are you saying what causes this finally? Yeah, I'm
1: saying what. what's going to be the spark? Maybe there doesn't have to be a spark. Maybe the interest rates
0: really do take two years to filter through the economy. I don't know. This is, this is the weird part about it because usually a recession is caused from excess in the economy, and then the Fed raises to take those excesses out of it. But if you want to define excess, wasn't it in the housing market, and the Fed already kind of snuffed that out? So you're right, like, what, other, what else is going to go totally overboard unless it is just the Fed keeping rates higher and that eventually just cycles through and it's a slow, slow death by a 1,000 cuts? I don't know. All right, so we have no new highs in the stock market yet. We're close. We're within, like, spitting distance for the NASDAQ 100 and the S&P 500. But we do have new highs again as of this morning. Case-Shiller National Home Price Index is up again. New, new highs in the housing market. Annie Lowry at the Atlantic had a piece, and the headline I thought was a good one, it will never be a good time to buy a house. And she's talking from personal experience. She said she moved to Brooklyn. I can't even imagine how expensive it would be. She, moved, that, she,
1: she moved to Brooklyn or from Brooklyn?
0: I think she moved to Brooklyn and tried to find a house and said it was just laughable. It was never going to happen. Do you? What do you think the feeling would be if we picked up all 7 million people in New York and moved them to like – Pennsylvania or Ohio or Michigan or Indiana, how different would they think about prices and inflation? Because I mean, New York was already dealing, New York was already dealing with like everyone complains about high prices. Now, if you're a New Yorker, you've already been living with high prices for your whole life. If you lived there, like New York has already been a step above everything for prices. So I'm saying like, how many people eventually go like, all right, I'm out of here. And that's been happening a little bit, but that migration, you would think with unaffordability has to be skyrocketing. So interesting stat from this one at at this time, 15 years ago, real estate agents had 2.2 million vacant housing units available to show prospects. That number has dwindled and dwindled. And now sits at 732,000, despite the country having added 30, 30 million people to its population in that time, which is kind of crazy to think about 30 million more people in 15 years. I do agree. Like, I don't, I think, I think that if
1: rates come down, I don't know that home prices are going to skyrocket. I think that might have been a bit much when I said that a couple of weeks ago. I think we just need more activity. That's my point. Like, but the, the prices have been reset. The price,
0: the home prices are not going to come back down to what they were. No, you're not getting pre-pandemic home prices again. She says, it's not going to be a good time to buy a house for a really long time. How long? I put the, that question to a few housing economists and real estate experts. Their response, who knows? A decade, maybe in 2030, we could come, we could start to see some relief. Daryl Fairweather, the chief economist at Redfin, told me.
1: Relief, what does, is, what, is, what do they mean by
0: relief? I think it in means terms like of su- rates or prices. Su- I think it just, yeah, like price is a little bit like, and that's the thing. It it does seem like now, this is something that we we all have where we think the current scenario, the situation is going to last forever. And it never does. Like people in 2010. Oh, yeah, wait,
1: wait, wait. I might take the other side of that. For the current, for the housing situation that exists today, where when, what year was it? Where, I think it was 21, when the economy reopened and people started putting their houses on the market that there was like, 20 buyers for every listing, Right, I think that trend will stay in place for at least a few years because of the 75 million millennials.
0: Yes, it. and I, so here's my take on this. I think demographics are destiny in the housing market. And I, I said this like six years ago, millennials in the 2020s are going to be buying houses. There's going to be a shortage because of the, it wasn't like, that wasn't like some great call by me. That was just like math. And in the 2030s, we're probably going to see more supply than demand. Cause most of the millennials will have bought a house that are going to buy a house and some of the boomers are on the margin are going to be selling more. And so I think in the 2030s, it, it seems like a long time to wait, but I think that's when it's going to have to happen for it to like really shift where supply is going to like seriously outstrip demand for a meaningful period of time.
1: So the stress, the stress in buying a home in terms of competing with a lot of other buyers, I feel like that's, that's structural for at least a few more years. Maybe Possibly. through the end of the decade,
0: but I just think if I think lower rates would help in terms of like just getting more activity and having like having more options to buy, right? And in resetting those those monthly payments a little lower, even if prices rise a little bit.
1: All right, let's talk about let's talk about uh, a dumb survey that went viral over the the weekend. More and so empower. What's that?
0: There's more and more of these.
1: <laughs> empower survey. Oh, wait, before you 2000- get into this, yeah. someone,
0: someone, someone tweeted me or emailed and said, like, don't you guys understand how, like, surveys and sampling works? This is how it works. Like, we understand sampling. Our point is that, like, the way that you ask a question, like, sampling makes sense. You have to, you can't ask literally everyone in the country to come up with, but you, the way that they ask questions and the way that people, the sentiment acts, like, that, those kind of surveys can be messed up and they're not reflective of reality, even if the sampling thing works. We're not not saying statistics doesn't work. We're saying... Some, sometimes the way that these work. surveys are conducted are not accurate. So
1: here, here is a great example of of uh, why surveys are bullshit. 59% of Americans believe money can buy happiness. Bullshit. If you were asking people honestly, I'm going to say that number is like 98%. Yeah,
0: that's true. And the
1: actual number of people it can buy happiness for? Are you kidding me? 59%. I'll, I'll, so people answer how they think they're supposed to answer in many cases. No, oh, of right. course money doesn't buy happiness. Oh, give, me, give me a break.
0: Because people always say money doesn't buy happiness.
1: Right, exactly. It's it's y- Exactly. Um, okay, so they asked the price of happiness for your desired net worth. And millennials are so far beyond everything else when you compare people's answers versus their actual net worth. So the gap is sort of hilarious. But the thing that really made people go nuts was uh, the annual salary by generation to feel happy, um, and so for all people it was two hundred eighty-four thousand dollars. I don't know what the median salary is in the United States. Ben, do you know that number
0: offhand? Is it? I don't want to give a number and embarrass myself. It depends on household. It's like seventy or something. Individual, it's like fifties ish, sixties, okay. something like that. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's obviously that the number is ridiculous.
1: So anyway, Boomer said one hundred twenty-four thousand. Gen X said 130,000, Gen Z said 128,000, and inexplicably millennials said 525,000. This chart looks like a giant middle finger. So I don't know exactly how Which to would explain put you in this. like the top 2% of all incomes? Probably top 1%. Maybe yeah. even
0: more. I don't know how to explain this. Do you have any thoughts on No, I, I can't There's there's no way that millennials really feel this way. I, I have no explanation for it.
1: All right, and here's another reason number four million why surveys are bullshit. How much time have we spent over the last couple of months? And I think we're gonna. I think. I think we're, we've reached peak uh, animal spirits, talking about the disconnect between the economy and people's feelings. Can we say that we're gonna
0: we're gonna pare back on that? Yeah, theme? there's no. There's nothing else to. At this point, it it is what it is.
1: Yeah, we're we're, we're not going to retire this and thing. A, there's but a, there's I, a million I, different pr- variables, and yeah, I promise this this will be more or less the end of it from us. Um, but the state they asked a question: the state of American happiness today. So okay, we spent the last couple of months talking about how miserable people are, uh, and and yet they ask at home, people say eighty percent overall happiness. Uh, people say eighty percent happiness at home. Overall happiness seventy five percent. So okay, so this survey is a 75% overall happiness. And in other surveys, it's like 14% of, of Americans think that their personal financial situation has gotten better since Joe Biden took office. How do you explain the gigantic gaps in how people feel based on various what surveys? What if they
0: asked the, the state of happiness on Twitter, it would be like 3%. So, Social media, 5% happiness.
1: Uh, 75% overall happiness. Oh, cool. So I guess people are happy. Is that what we're trying to say here? Or maybe service are kind of bullshit.
0: Yes, or just broken. All right. The Wall Street Journal had a piece about fighting with money that a researcher did. Research found when partners disagree about mundane expenses such as grocery bills and shopping receipts, they tend to have better relationships. But if you fight about like bigger things like contribution of household finances, and that that or perceived irresponsibility in spending. That's particularly detrimental. So fighting about the little stuff is actually a good thing because it means that you don't have the big stuff. If you're really fighting about the big stuff, that means there's probably something else simmering under the surface that you want to get.
1: True, if you're if you're if you really have money issues, you're probably not bickering about the small stuff. But if you bicker about the small stuff, it's actually like a luxury, right? Because you don't really have anything to complain about.
0: Do you and Rob never fight about money?
1: No. Not really. No, Robin is pretty far removed from our financial situation. Not because I don't try and bring her in. She just, she doesn't, she doesn't really care. And I'm pretty sure she has no idea how much money we make.
0: <laughs> My wife's part in the same same boat. I got a question for you, personal finance wise. Okay. Why do we still have ATM fees? If you go to an ATM that is not yours, you pay like a $2, $2.50 fee. And then your bank charges you like $2.50. I know some of them, why does that still exist? That, that seems, that's ridiculous to me. They have to pay ATM like $5 fees. to take out $20. That's a great,
1: yeah. Is that, yeah, is that just, we
0: we just do it because
1: they can? How much money do you think they squeeze out of the consumer's pocket a year? It's got to be billions.
0: It's got to be billions. It's ridiculous. No? I, just, I I did that this weekend. I'm like, they just charged me $5 for 20 I, for the most part,
1: never pay ATM fees. I always go to a chase unless I'm in like a casino. I,
0: that's what I usually try to do as well. Which you can actually usually find one of those, but what's this Bill Gates thing?
1: Um, you know who doesn't have personal finance problems or money problems? Uh, Walter Bloomberg tweeted, Bill Gates earns nearly $500 million in annual dividend well, income.
0: Well, that's because he had something else simmering under the surface because he got a divorce recently. <laughs> so he was, they, him and his wife must have been fighting about the big stuff, not the little stuff.
1: He received $464 million in, in U.S. dividend income from his investment portfolio so far this year.
0: Yeah, but adjust that for inflation, then was it really? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Dave wrote this about our deep impact thought last year, last week. Ben in the deep impact scenario, there's a ninety percent chance of a meteor hitting the earth. I would take every penny I could possibly get my hands on and leverage long with reckless abandon. If I'm right, I'm rich. If I'm wrong, it doesn't matter. Pascal's wager. Yeah. That that's pretty good. That,
1: yeah, that's that a good makes point. sense that's w-
0: like the dark Cashin thing. Like
1: if yeah, there's was a, just the Cuban
0: Missile Crisis, right? Yeah. All right. Uh one more. Well, random tell that story. Tell that story real quick. So, wasn't it the Cuban Missile Crisis and someone said, sell all your stocks, what happens if there's a nuclear war? And our cash and said, no, 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 no. You go buy hand over fist. If there's a nuclear war, who cares what your stocks do? If there's not a war, you're going to be rich because the stock market are going to come back. Right. Which is pretty good. All right. I saw a, an old truck with some rust the other day. Think about it. You never, back in like the 80s and 90s when we were growing up, you would see cars with rust on the road all the time. Like super True. rusted out. You never see cars with rust anymore. I saw it and it was surprising to see actual rust. Like, I feel like we've done away with rust on our cars somehow through the power of technology. Cars don't rust anymore or people just don't hold them long enough.
1: That's a great point. No, I think paint has has improved. I think we've spoken about this in the past. My mom, back in the day, drove a Volvo with like the back seat where your like knees were like pressed up against the glass basically. And you're like driving backwards.
0: The station wagon.
1: The station wagon.
0: Station wagon was the SUV of the 1980s and 90s.
1: How dangerous when was Until the minivan inside. came along.
0: Yeah, probably couldn't have been great. We used to have drive, a, my parents used to drive a conversion van
1: in the What's benches that, wait, what the, the heck is
0: that? Like a big van, like a, you know, you'd, you'd assume a, a person is trying to get little kids into it with his candy kind of guy. Oh, wh- Why did they drive that? Was it for work? I have no, for kids. And the benches had no seatbelts. We had no <laughs> seatbelts in the back. We just like, we're flying around. <laughs> when I was little in the 80s. What did you have eight siblings? Why I don't don't understand why they drove that car. I have a good question. I have no idea this is like before minivans were around. The minivan came around in like the nineties and that changed everything. Late eighties, early nineties, probably. All right, recommendations. You mentioned Bye Bye Barry on Amazon. I watched it. He was my hero growing up. I loved this. And the funny thing is, is I remember when he retired early and walked away and I wasn't mad at all. I totally, it was like, I totally understood it. That's incredible. I I got, I like- You weren't mad? You're not, not mad about inflation.
1: You're not mad about Barry Sanders. You're just, you're an even-killed sort of guy. How are he, you not
0: mad? They, because the Lions were so inept at running that franchise that I totally understood it. I was, I was like a, I don't know, a sophomore in high you? school. Okay. You're very sophomore mature. Sophomore in high school, probably. And I, he was my hero. I, I, obviously, I was not compare myself to him, but like I tried to be very, I practiced spin moves. I will say. You, and you played, you, you ran in the Silver Dome? I did run in the Silver Dome. He was my hero. And, he has the greatest highlight reel of any football player in history. And I don't think it's cl- there's a close second. Not even close. There, there's never been anyone like him before, or and there never will be. Like, the moves he made were, there's never been anything like him. You know and why? I, I, just felt, I felt bad for him for being on the Lions. I really did. His
1: body was like a sports car. It was so low to the ground. And his thighs were enormous. And his balance was insane. And he bounced off tacklers. And he had breakaway speed. Like, you're right. There was never... There's never been a, a football player like him.
0: Yeah, so it, I, I, thought, I thought it was I thought this, really well I thought done.
1: It, it was really funny because he was probably the most humble superstar. Not probably, yeah. the most humble superstar of all time. A
0: person like that couldn't exist today. No, and his dad wanted all of the limelight. Yes, it was. It, yeah, it's a good story. It's He's a great definitely topic. a unique guy. So, I was but, but, to look but for... there was. I remember, like,
1: I remember when he retired, and there was like, why did he do? I mean, it's this is not a great mystery. Like, he was just done. Yeah. Oh, I, I take a picture of this. Um, the se- because the season in 1998, where he ran for 2000 yards. Oh, wait, I thought I took a picture of this. Hold on. Let me just Google this. So Barry Sanders, 1998 game log. So in 1998, when he, when he had a uh, 2000 yards rushing, which had only been done at that point, I think Walter Payton at the time, I don't know. And OJ, o- o- maybe only OJ. I can't remember. It was just OJ. Yeah. Okay, but anyway, so in the first two games of 1997, 1998, he rushed for 33 yards in the first game and 20 yards in the second game.
0: That's right, He 53 yards in the first two games. So 53 yards in the first two games. And then these are the... (laughs) 2,000 for the next 14.
1: So listen to the the rushing yards for the next uh, 14 games. 161, 113, 139, 107, 215, 105, 105, 105, 108, 216, 167, 137,
0: 138, 184. Yeah, one of a kind. Unbelievable. The doc was so good. It was really I was looking good. For, I was looking to watch a Thanksgiving movie besides Planes, Trains, and Automobiles because, of course, I watched that. And I found a suggestion was Funny People, which I don't know I if it's a Thanksgiving movie. They have a Friendsgiving in the movie. Okay. It's a long movie, so it's not really a Thanksgiving movie, but it got me thinking. That was like the end of the Judd Apatow line. You know, it was Sandler and Rogan and Jonah what, Hill and Aubrey Yeah, what Plaza year was that? 11? Leslie Mann and Jason Schwartzman and Aziz. We don't have those ensembles of comedies anymore. Maybe it'll come back someday, but I feel like my whole life we've had ensemble comedies where young people are coming up. You know, in the 90s, it it was Sandler and Farley and Chris Rock and all these people and Spade. We just don't have that anymore.
1: Shit, that movie's like 15 years old. Came out in 2009. Oh, my God, we're old. Well, you know why? Actually, I don't know. This is not the reason why. Well, they don't
0: make comedies, number one. Right. But... They can never pay a cast like this. Right. That's what I'm saying. You have to find them young. Maybe the young people now are just going to TikTok or YouTube or something and not being actors. I don't know. I feel like the first half is, the first half is a lot better than the second half. Yes. Yeah, so the movie trails off. You can watch the first two-thirds and you're good.
1: Okay. So there are movies that you've seen a, a million times. Forest Gump, Shawshank, all the Rockies. And I think the reason why, at least for me, is because they were on TNT and USA. And back in all the day, all the time, all the time
0: before streaming existed,
1: yeah. And uh, and I guess now it's like you know, HBO is like casinos always on, I've seen that a billion times. But I very rarely will stream a movie to rewatch, I'd say 97% of the movies
0: that I watch are new to me. Okay, I rewatch movies all the time still.
1: Okay. So I decided to rewatch Prometheus and Alien Covenant, I guess because we were talking about uh, Ridley Scott last week. F***ing awesome. I know I Prometheus love those movies. great. Because I've yeah. seen Prometheus a million times. Alien Covenant was way better than I remember.
0: That was pretty decent. Yeah, because it was a lot of the same characters too, right? Or,
1: uh, I mean,
0: Fast or Fast Binder Binder was better. yeah.
1: Way better than I remember. Uh, all right, somebody emailed us. Gentlemen, I've never emailed into anything in my life but I watched when evil lurks last night and I had to make this my first. I loved it. However, there were five scenes that will haunt me for the rest of my life. (laughs) My wife thinks my wife who thinks I am insane for watching this stuff constantly asked me, how do people come up with this? Doesn't that disturb you? What is your response to that? I had a similar experience with my wife when I was watching, um, speak no evil, which
0: like really and truly hurt to watch. How many different horror movies you watch with the word evil in the name? A lot. Speak no evil. There should be a
1: warning. Like, this will upset you. It was like that upsetting. Uh, and my wife had a similar reaction. And I don't, I, it's, a really, it's a really interesting question. Like, why do people, myself included, enjoy watching things that are like seriously disturbing?
0: I think because everyone has like 5% of them that is a little disturbing and just wants to let that freak flag fly. Yeah, I don't know what the answer is because I can't. I, I hate. I hate
1: to say that I get pleasure from watching it because it's so. De- some of this stuff is so demented. Like there was a scene. I might have said this. There was a scene in uh, when Evil Lurks where like I literally had the reaction to like close
0: my laptop and like chuck it. She's like what? I don't know. Can't explain it. I can't either because I, I don't. I don't. I don't. I'm not a big fan of that feeling.
1: Oh, one more thing. Uh, speaking of the Barry Sanders thing, you, so you, t- you you tweeted over the weekend that there's nothing like college football. And I'm not here to shit on college football because growing up in the Northeast, it's just not something that we do. Like there's not- Right. I understand. No coll- New York doesn't have as much of a college. New York is a pro sports Well, there's no, there's no colleges here. I mean, there's like Rutgers right. and St. John's, I yeah. guess. I get it. Um, so my, so my question, and I know people are super, super passionate about college football. My question to you would be, isn't it difficult- or confusing to follow in the sense that isn't there so much turnover because players just don't stick around that long? Yeah, or, am I, that, or is that?
0: No, that's that's a fun, yeah. Jerry Seinfeld said you're cheering for laundry. but Okay, is that like the fun part of it? Like yeah, rooting a for like f- yeah, the new freshman? Yeah, it changes. And it's just the the pageantry and the emotion and the, the, the amount of people that like get into it. And it's like every week means like everything. Because if you lose one game, you're kind of out of the – Playoff picture or whatever. Do you so know the do you do you know the players on the field or do you mostly root for the team? No, I know the players too, but it's it's both. But I I just I grew up with college football was the biggest thing to me. I think that's that's part. Plus I rooted for the Lions, so it wasn't like they they were always so terrible yeah. that it, you know, they, they were came second for sure. How how uh
1: <laughs> let me play this. So on uh on Thanksgiving, I bet on the Lions. And uh, they didn't. So win.
0: did I. Never bet against your team because you lose twice. You bet on the Lions. Yes, bad idea. So,
1: so Logan was in the playroom and he was uh, he was crying, and I didn't know why. So I walked in. So I watched like myself. I watched the ring to see what he was crying about. I think he got stuck in the little room. But listen to this. <laughs> you hear that? <laughs>
0: That's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> holding.
1: So Logan <laughs> is in the little of crying, and I'm screaming at number 75 of the Packers. was clearly holding, and the refs missed it.
0: Clearly. All right. Time to give up from
1: gambling. All right. Uh, one, more, one more thing. Right, you know what? I'm going to have to say it. Where do people
0: email us? Animal Spirits at the compoundnews.com.